This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by AARP, empowering people to choose how they live as they age for more than 60 years. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. Today we have two segments about the future of work, so I encourage you to stick around for the whole show. First, I'm delighted to introduce Susan Wilmer Golden. She's a lecturer at Stanford Business School, and she's going to be talking to us about the demographics that are shaping the workforce in America. Susan Wilmer Golden, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, we're delighted. And first, a word to our audience. We would like you to join the conversation too, so please send your questions to the Twitter handle at PostLive. That's at PostLive and join the conversation. Over to you, Professor Golden. Let's get to that big question. What is going on, demographically speaking, in America and what's it doing to our workforce? There is a dramatic demographic shift that's been happening in the past century. People are now living much longer lives. Uh, life expectancy right now, if you um, live to 65 in relatively good health, you have a greater chance of living well into your 90s. Children born today should expect to live through their 100s. And that has all sorts of implications for education, work, financial, lifestyle, family, and uh, the workforce has not quite adapted to all these new changes. So let's talk about retirement age. This retirement group is clearly swelling. Those numbers you give me are astounding. But are Americans retiring when they reach traditional retirement age? Some are, uh, but more and more people want to work longer and actually need to work longer. Uh, it's rare that a 40-year career could support a 40-year retirement, both from a financial mm -hmm. standpoint, but also from a purpose and community engagement standpoint. So increasingly, uh, companies are beginning to value their experienced workforce and finding new ways to integrate them and to help them upskill so they can continue to grow within the company or perhaps into career transitions to other areas. We're gonna see in the future, people having six to 10 different career chapters with no judgment. And um, that will require a lot of continuing education that both companies can provide and that could be provided elsewhere. But this is a new trend that com some companies are beginning to uh, take advantage of, uh, in part by having returnship programs for people who have taken career breaks for caregiving or for career transitions. So we find this a very exciting opportunity right now, rather than a problem. You have a book that's about to come out, and I was able to look through it a little bit last night, and I'm struck by the different stages you talk about within the retirement period. Could you step back and describe to us what those different stages are? Sure. Um, as I looked at what people were doing, just taking the bucket of people over 50, over 55, over 65 as one homogenous group, there's just great uh, variation, and people have a variety of uh, contributions to offer from 65 to 100. And we think it's so important that people recognize there are multiple stages. It's not just one stage called retirement, but it could be uh, a period of entrepreneurship. There's a term actually that's being promoted out there called sidepreneurs or olderpreneurs as people have much to contribute. In fact, uh, a large majority of companies that are successful are started by people 55 and older. 
Um, so when I looked at what people were defining by age, it was a very limiting approach. And I began to look at stages. And I think of the most active stage is actually from uh, 60 and over, where you could be repurposing. Um, it's your renaissance stage. You can be doing a portfolio of things, working in a company, outside of a company, volunteering, contributing to society in many important ways. So some of the terms that I float around are, are renaissance. I think that's a really great way to <laughs> capture that period. And instead of thinking about olderhood or seniorhood, I think about it as furtherhood. But I have to ask you about gender with, uh, with relation to this. I know I think we've all heard about men in their 50s being seen as at their prime and women being seen as perhaps past it. Are you seeing any change in that kind of division as we look at this longer period of retirement? Yeah, I actually am. I'm, I'm really encouraged by how many companies are beginning to offer returnship programs, initially for women, but increasingly men are participating in them too. So these are people who have taken career breaks, primarily for caregiving, either for children or for parents or spouses, and valuing that career break in a, in a unique way and recognizing they need to ha have some upskilling. But these paid returnships are being offered now by dozens of companies, and they recognize they want to bring back their, their wisdom workforce and get them involved and um, and it's particularly focused initially on women and I'm encouraged by that actually. Huh. So tell me a little bit more about specific steps that corporations are taking in order to harness this, this dynamic and growing workforce. Well, uh, companies um, who are on the game of this, they're, they're becoming age ready and they're developing a longevity strategy. And that's on multiple levels. One for their workforce, recognizing that people may want career breaks, are gonna need upskilling, um, are gonna maybe want some career transitions over at different times. Sabbaticals are gonna become more important. Companies are recognizing multi-generational teams are of great value, economic value, innovation value, so that an older workforce can look at a product and service and say, it's not just for the 18 to 34 year old demographic, it's a much broader demographic, but don't sell to them as old. Um, and that's really exciting to see. And then there's an awful lot of great intergenerational and reverse mentoring situations happening in companies. Um, companies are gonna have a five generation workforce and they need to learn how to lead teams in that way and have management practices for that. You just said something astounding, a five generation workforce. Again, I saw that in your book, five generations? Yeah. Yeah, if people are living to 100 and somebody wants to work through their 90s, you can imagine the 20-year-old working with the 90-year-old. I mean, made most, you know, the, the famous movie, The Intern was, you know, a, a preview of that going forward. But yes, you're, I think we're going to see that. And I think those companies are going to thrive. And what's the role of the government in all of this? Is it working on retraining and upskilling, that, as you've been talking about? Is it playing a leadership role or lagging? I, I think we're a little behind. I think we need to have a variety of policies that will support this, uh, anywhere from having a longevity savings account so you can have educational programs and to reskill and upskill for caregiving breaks, um, for digital literacy is going to be enormously important. Other countries have national digital literacy programs for all people over 50, not just once, but every year, because you're going to need to be fluent in those uh, techniques and skills. And our government isn't there, although there's some new initiatives happening right now with Google and ARP to launch digital literacy training programs around the country. So uh, private sector is doing an awful lot. Government, I think, hopefully will 
come along as they recognize this enormous opportunity. So people can so work longer and more. I want to talk a little bit more about this concept of ageism and the notion that um, the sort of bias against older people. Do, are companies at the forefront of, uh, of combating that or is that a more societal problem? And how do we go about rethinking how we think about older people? It's both. And there are companies that are very much taking a ageism pledge, a longevity pledge to uh, eliminate ageism in the workforce, the concept being turned ageism into sageism. These are experienced <laughs> workers. Um, and then individually, we all have to not say, oh, I just had a senior moment that, you know, promotes the stereotype. So language matters. And there's some great initiatives happening um, along with uh, both nationally and internationally on addressing ageism throughout society and in the workforce. But marketing is probably one of the biggest places we can make a change, not stereotyping that all older adults are frail and elderly, that they can have various uh, stages from 60 plus that are filled with vibrancy and contribution and marketing to the older consumer, um, how they do that will really need to change in companies. Well, I'm thinking of the phrase, OK, boomer, of course, but how do you think things are changing as boomers age into the the aged group, as it were? Well, they're going to want to work longer. They're going to want to be part of society. So I think they're going to be a part of uh, part of the change. And I think the more we recognize the contributions of older adults, I mean, COVID actually brought that to the forefront with doctors and nurses returning from retirement and, and contributing uh, computer programmers who knew code that others didn't. And the, you know, the enormous contributions of people 85 and plus is going to be growing, and that's going to be the, the most growing demographic going forward, believe it or not. I do want to ask you a little bit more, though, about retiring. Some people really actively want to retire at 65. Are you saying this is not going to be possible as we have this huge bubble in the retirement age group? They may want to retire from that career that they had or that uh, position, but they may want to take a break and rejuvenate and rethink what they want to do and repurpose. And it might be part work. It might be part volunteering. Um, there are programs and companies now to support that. Um, and I think that that will happen. But I think people will not want a 40 year waiting around. They're going to want to be repurposed and have you know excitement in their life. And it might be a portfolio of things. I think that's going to be, become the norm. And companies that can support flexible work and part-time work and transitions will thrive. We have a question that's come out of Twitter that I'd like to read to you from one of our viewers. So let me just take a look at that for you. It says, can Susan talk about what one, about one thing older Americans over 50 years old can do to reduce the risk of age bias when job hunting after upskilling in the tech in industry as a career switcher? Thanks. Good question from Aaron Corral. It is a great question. I don't think there's a foolproof answer. There's uh, some belief that you should not put down what years you graduated uh, school or um, and that kind of buckets you. So that's one area. I think if you can uh, convey in your LinkedIn or in your resume that you you're a continuous learner, that you've upskilled, um, that you're an innovator, all the, uh, the looking forward uh, words, I think, is one of the, I think, attractive features of somebody who's going to join a new company and a new team. Well, tell me a little bit more about people removing their age. I mean, I, th I think this is something I've heard of. I know somebody who retired at 60 and, and her name, her age was out there and, and, a, and a headhunter said to her, can you remove it? I can't get a job for a 60 year old woman. Um, and I don't. I don't. Or do you not agree with that? 
I mean, it's it's there. I don't think we know yet what's the best way to do it. I think you sh there should be pride in your age and pride in your vibrancy and pride in that you want to keep going forward. And LinkedIn, interestingly, has now put on their profile the option you can say career break, um, a career transition, so you don't have to hide it and, and, and define it that there will be multiple career breaks going forward. And in that period, you might be retooling. I did. I had the good fortune to attend a mid-career program at Stanford called the Distinguished Careers Institute, which totally revamped my career after a career break. I actually want to ask you a little bit about your early career, which I think was in public health, and ask you mm -hmm. how that's informed your thinking now. Clearly, you have a background in epidemiology and demographics, but also how it's informed your thinking about the workplace. So maybe you could just step back and tell us a little bit about that public health perspective. Sure. I think of public health as a framework, not just a career. It's, it's all about prevention. And I think we're in a prevention stage now in terms of work and retirement. We know that people who don't have purpose suffer from isolation and loneliness, and that uh, increases their decline. So having purpose and uh, community, which you often find through work, um, increases your longevity. So from a public health perspective, I advocate for that uh, enormously. And I think companies that create communities within within the workforce will also help promote longevity within their workforce going forward. So this to me is a public health paradigm. Um, also, if you have enough financial savings to support your longer life, you will thrive, you will do better. And we know that education corresponds dramatically with income. So being a continuous learner, the concept now is lifelong learning, and sometimes people are calling it long life learning. But that's going to be a factor. 20-year education um, is now going to span a 60-year time span going forward. You were working on your book, Stage Not Age, uh, during the pandemic. And you say in it that COVID, in some ways, despite its awfulness, was a catalyst for good changes. Could you explain that? Yeah, because on the front page of every newspaper with the the challenges and the uh, and the, the family concerns about caregiving, they couldn't see their loved ones or they wanted to take them out of certain residences. So caregiving became front and center. And we know that many families and many women in particular left the workforce for caregiving, both for older adults and for their children who were being schooled at home. Um, so it brought to the forefront this, this dual friction between work and family, which we have to resolve and address and help people thrive. It also brought to the forefront all the people who were coming to help who were older. Um, but we noticed uh, most dramatically the impact on the senior community, the uh, older adults who are isolated and the, in, uh, the awful tragic loss of life. And so much of that is preventable from my standpoint as a public health perspective. So um, I advocate enormously for public health practices going forward to protect our, our communities. So, so one of the things that the, the pandemic made so clear was the existing uh, disparities and inequities in our society. And I wonder about these changes in aging and in, what, in an aging workplace. Are they, are they applicable to people ac across different demographic groups, across educational groups? Or are we talking really about people who are highly educated getting these opportunities to keep working later in their lives? There's no doubt it's more prevalent among the more educated, um, but there is more upskilling happening in companies and there's more initiatives to help people repurpose, retool, work part time if they need to. We're seeing a trend. It's not 
in uniform yet, but I think as more companies see the benefit of the multi-generational workforce, um, companies are designing products better for older adults because they're having older adults in their workforce, and they will thrive when if they take advantage of this knowledge base, experience base, and perspective. And you're an evidence-based person, but are we seeing any evidence that the pandemic, which made us rely so heavily on technology, actually worked in favor of young people rather than older people in the workforce? Older people use technology. They just don't use it as uh, in an as native a way. It just takes a little bit longer sometimes to learn it. They might want it simplified. But uh, the vast majority, uh, especially in COVID, of older adults, adults learned to use Zoom. And that was a new tool for them. Um, they didn't only rely on their grandchildren to teach it to them or their children, but that happened. Um, but now there's there's digital literacy training programs for free for all older adults through um, some wonderful organizations, including OATS and ARP. Um, so we're seeing a trend of everybody's going to have to be digitally literate and um, will continue to be, but it might just need to learn a little bit differently or in a different way. You mentioned earlier in the show other developed countries that have taken steps to harness this growing uh, demographic trend. Which ones and what have they been doing right that we could learn from? So I look to Denmark as one of the great models. Um, they have an initiative that is multi-year, all facets of longevity, including helping people work longer, digital liter national digital literacy campaigns. Um, they're really a model and some other countries have implemented their model, including Israel, Singapore is addressing this, Japan is addressing this, Germany is addressing this because they're older societies and we're becoming quickly an older society. Um, so there are some really great models out there to look to how countries are developing their workforce and developing a longevity strategy. And what's the biggest misconception you think out there about older Americans? I think that they're everybody thinks they're declining rather than thriving. And I think uh, the people I know that are 60 and plus are in their happiest stages of life. And older adults tend to look for positivity. So they are looking for what uh, makes them happy, what brings them joy. They look for positive messaging. And instead of everything has in the past, I think been much more fear-based, you know, you're gonna fall, you're gonna decline. Um, and there are ways to prevent that, of course, um, but there's so much more to look forward to. And that's, that's the a great. That's a great message to finish on, more to look forward to. Thank you so much for joining us. Susan Wilner-Golden, uh, from Harvard, sorry, from Stanford Business School. Thank you for inviting me. I'll be back in a few minutes with Katia Walsh from the Levi Strice Company. She's a senior vice president and also the chief artificial intelligence officer. So join me back in a few minutes. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello everyone, I'm Ruth Umo, Leadership Editor at Fortune. The pandemic has profoundly affected employment opportunities for Americans of all ages, but disproportionately so for older workers who have faced a more challenging job market. Joining me to discuss this very topic is Jean Axius, Senior Vice President of Global Thought Leadership at AARP. Welcome Jean, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Ruth. 
Absolutely. Well, as I noted in my intro, Jean, the pandemic has truly had an impact on the entire American workforce, but certain groups have been especially hard hit. What has AARP's research shown about the experiences of older workers over the last two years or so? Well, Ruth, as you indicated, the last two years has been rough on all Americans, all ages, and all population groups. What we've seen, particularly during the pandemic, is that older workers in particular has been disproportionately impacted. During the first six months of the pandemic, older workers were 17% more likely to become unemployed relative to their younger counterparts. We've also conducted some surveys that have found that, uh, particularly with the perception of age discrimination in the workplace, that it was actually uh, significantly higher uh, during the pandemic. In fact, 78% of older workers indicated that they either experienced or seen age discrimination in the workforce. That is significantly higher than prior years. We also know that if you are a woman uh, and if you're a person of color, you are disproportionately impacted as well. So you have a situation in terms of a double, and in some cases a triple whammy as a result of this pandemic. In particular, women uh, who may have had to either um, leave the workforce or take a pause or had to manage, in some cases, childcare or uh, grandchildren responsibilities or caregiving responsibilities, responsibilities saw a uh, job in, uh, disruption. And we've also seen significant job losses, particularly throughout the pandemic for uh, people of color, whether you're a man or a woman. Uh, so we know that, that there are huge disparities, particularly in the labor force, that we need to address uh, because these disparities actually impact all populations and all ages. As you alluded to, there's been an uptick in pandemic-related job losses for older workers. But what's interesting is that the representation of older workers has been on a steady rise for the last few decades. With that in mind, how can employers ensure that they are attracting, recruiting, and retaining this core demographic of workers? Well, I really appreciate that question. I think that's a very uh, key point. People are living longer and as a result, either want to or need to continue working. And in many cases, employers are having to and are seeing that their workforce is multi-generational. When you think about older workers, you want to think about some of the skills that older workers actually bring into the workplace, whether that is institutional knowledge, whether that is creativity, uh, whether that is experience with problem solving, innovation, mentoring and training. Uh, critical thinking skills. These are skills and experience uh, that is vital, not just for today, but also uh, for the future of workplaces across the globe, frankly. And I think that as we are in this environment where there is a war on talent, you have a untapped market that I think talent acquisition uh, teams, uh, leaders across all different businesses need to tap into. How do you leverage the insights and the wisdom that only comes with age and the experience in a way that benefits your bottom line, but also benefits uh, the entire workforce? Yeah. Such a critical point. And to piggyback off of that, what then can employers do to aid in reskilling not only their current employees, but potential job candidates? I think this is a wonderful time. We know that particularly doing some of the work that we've done at AARP, uh, that older workers are, uh, they want to uh, gain more skills. Uh, they're looking to contribute uh, to uh, mission-driven organizations, and they're doing it in multiple different ways. So as employers and organizations think about ways to attract and retain uh, high talent, there's a couple of things that we would recommend. 
One is the fact that to think about the opportunities to provide training across all different life stages, uh, that everyone across age groups want to provide value and they're looking for growth and opportunity. Uh, so as companies are thinking about talent, what are the opportunities to really think about career planning on an ongoing basis, growth professional development opportunities on an ongoing basis. We are seeing companies do things from uh, reverse uh, mentoring to providing training uh, across different platforms in a way that is meaningful and intentional and strategic. Uh, we know that the jobs of today as well as the jobs of tomorrow will require the different skills that we've just talked about in terms of critical thinking and problem solving. And we know that older workers bring that to the workplace and do that extremely well. Uh, so as we think about the opportunities for innovation and we think about the opportunities for um, sustainability and profitability, we have an opportunity to tap into this amazing market of older workers that bring that wealth of experience uh, to the workplace. Very well said. And as you noted, this issue is all the more prescient given the tight labor market squeeze we're seeing across a number of industries. Jean, thank you so much for your time and your deep insights. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back to Washington Post Live. For those of you just joining us, I'm Frances Steedsell as a senior writer here at The Post. I'm honored to introduce my next guest, Katia Walsh. She is a senior vice president and chief artificial intelligence officer at the Levi Strauss and Company. Katia Walsh, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. It's a pleasure to be with you. And again, a word to our audience, don't forget to tweet questions for Katia to at Post Live. That's the Twitter handle at Post Live. Thanks. So Katia Walsh, one of the uh, dramatic things that Levi Strauss and Company did was to have a boot camp, a machine learning boot camp. We'll talk a little bit about the details, but tell me what provoked that decision to have a boot camp and what was your role in doing it and creating it? Certainly. So in the past year, we launched an industry first machine learning boot camp. It's part of an overall portfolio of digital upskilling that we provide as a company as part of our digital transformation. And this boot camp, and we'll talk a little bit more about that is a key part of what we do as a company. It is actually very much in line with the overall DNA of Levi Strauss and Company. Levi Strauss and Company has always invested in its workforce. It has always invested in education. Our founder, Levi Strauss himself, an immigrant from Bavaria, back in the 19th century, created a scholarship for 12 people in California, six of which were for women. That was back at a time when women were not even able to vote. So we have this long history and legacy of supporting uh, people of all backgrounds and genders and investing in people. And the specific impetus for this particular bootcamp was that we wanted to make sure that we train people, that we uh, get people with digital skills, not just from outside, but also from within the company. We have thousands of people around the world who know the company, who know the industry, who love the brand, and they are our biggest champions. And we wanted to make sure they have the latest skills so that they will stay with us and we will also get the skills that we needed as a company. To be a little bit more specific about those skills that the bootcamp was trying to address, um, tell us the average worker and, and what they went through in that bootcamp, how they were transformed by it. 
We called it a boot camp for a reason. It was very intense. It was eight weeks out of the day job. And I really have to thank the managers of these people and my colleagues who supported this. It's not easy to lose uh, these usually high performing people to lose them for two months. Um, and it was a lot of hard work, hands on, lots of coding, uh, hands on work, statistics, neural networks. It was a full curriculum uh, that we had absolutely packed with everything one could possibly need to know and that we could really teach within the span of um, two months. We used Levi's data to solve Levi's problems. It was very practical. And at the end of the bootcamp, the combination is a graduation complete with a diploma and a presentation to the executive leadership team of Levi Strauss and company. So it is hard work. Everyone is very exhausted at the end. It is not a summer camp. <laughs> but boy, eight weeks out of the work um, schedule. How did you accommodate that? And did your colleagues initially have buy-in or was this something that had to be negotiated within the company? We were very fortunate to have buy-in from my colleagues, the executive team of Levi's, and particularly from our CEO and president, Chip Berg, who has always been very supportive of um, investing in our people. Uh, we also have a great internship program, for example, um, that takes juniors, um, rising seniors, really, uh, for our uh, summer internship program. And then at the end of the program, they actually leave with job offers from Levi's. So this really fit in the culture of the company. We had a great buy-in from our chief HR officer and we treated the, the absence of these people for two months, the same way that we treat uh, uh, a leave for adoption or a new baby, um, very much like uh, we would accommodate that. So it was very important to have the buy-in and we did have it. And this was all going on during the pandemic. How did that affect the timing and the progress of taking people out? There was so much turmoil anyway. Yes, you know, there's never a good time to have a transformation, <laughs> just like there's never a good time to have a baby. Um, but during the pandemic, uh, it really helped us realize the importance of technology. Again, Levi's has always been at the forefront of innovation. Uh, this company was one of the first in the United States to file for patents, so it is part of the culture of the company. But uh, the pandemic also showed us that there are things that we, we had to do faster than perhaps we would have planned otherwise. And so the bootcamp fit into that, and we realized the importance of accelerating our transformation and being all in on that. Tell me a little bit more about the boot camp itself, who applied to be there, how many employees applied to be there, what percentage of the workforce, a little bit more uh, of the shape of the, the event. Certainly. A bootcamp like that is nothing new, to be uh, uh, clear. Uh, lots of technology companies have had it. I came to Levi's from a technology company. We had a bootcamp there as well. What is different about this bootcamp, however, is that it is open to all. We uh, purposefully set out to make it open to all employees with no background in statistics or coding. And that is what makes this quite revolutionary for this industry and perhaps across many different industries. So I often say that it is open to all, but it is not for all because it's so intensive, because it is hands-on and because it teaches skills that we want people to apply in their day jobs after graduation. So uh, we were very, 
fortunate to have a great number of applications. There was tremendous interest. There were 450 applications uh, for only 100 spots in the first year. And we didn't really know how often we would be able to offer this. It was a great experiment. It's one of the greatest experiments of my career. But we were very happy to see this kind of interest. Um, and we wanted to make sure that we selected people who really not would not only would benefit from this, but could actually make it because it's an intense program. And because this field requires certain traits, we were testing for curiosity, for problem solving, for resilience and perseverance. And we wanted to make sure we got people who had those traits and everyone who started graduated. So I, I'm really curious about this application process. How did you identify those key traits in an application process? It was absolutely a pioneering effort. It wasn't easy. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's no shortage of boot camps. However, they usually require some kind of a background in this. And you know, even when I had done it in another company, there was a prerequisite requirement for some kind of a background. Here, we opened this to everyone in 24 locations around the world, to people who were in uh, stylist jobs in our retail stores, uh, people in design, you know, they're not usually associated with digital skills um, types of jobs, but that was exactly what we wanted to do. This was part of the objective to democratize this field and to really diversify the backgrounds and the talents that we would see in this space. So we have to design our own application process. We did have no code challenges. These were problems to solve that would test the problem solving skills of the applicants without requiring any kind of prior experience with coding or statistics. We also had um, in person, not in person, but personal interviews to test for things like perseverance and attitude. Um, it really was a test of the aptitude and attitude around learning. And that's what we achieved through this application process. I have a sort of two prong question. How disruptive was this for the company, firstly? And then secondly, the people who've come out of this, what sort of transformation have you seen in them as they've gone back into the workplace? It is very disruptive to take people out of their jobs for eight weeks, uh, two times in a year. And we're doing it for the third time again, starting um, in the next two weeks. And we'll do it again in the autumn of 2022. So no question, it is very disruptive. But Levi's has always been a company that has chosen to do the harder right over the easier wrong. And again, this fits so well in the values of this company. It's just another iteration of what this company has been doing for now 170 years. In terms of the outcomes we've seen, we talk about our digital transformation as helping us deliver three Cs, smarter connections with consumers, smarter creativity, which is the essence of a company like Levi's, and smarter commerce. And to this, I would add two more Cs, smarter careers for the people who come out of the uh, program 
and smarter culture because these people have now become the biggest champions of our digital transformation across the company. As some examples of what they've set out to achieve, and we could not have ever envisioned that it just happened. We've seen the manager of a retail store in Denver who has created a neural network that shows how various products among the thousands of products uh, that Levi's manufactures, how they fit together in the optimal outfit. So she now uses that when she works directly with consumers. We have someone else, uh, a designer, um, who has created a neural network that would take thousands of images of art and superimpose them on our classic iconic products like the Levi's tracker jacket I'm wearing now at the moment. <laughs> so we now have art and AI-inspired design as an example of that. And we have lots of other applications around the world from predictive maintenance to identifying defects in manufacturing to uh, sorting through our distribution networks and many more to come as we have our new cohorts in 2022. So the people who've been through the classes have learned things. What have you gleaned? You're clearly committed to classes or boot camps three and four. How will they differ from one and two? They are always different. The first one is like having your first child. You fret over every <laughs> little thing. <laughs> I have two children, so I can remember. Uh, you fret over every little thing. You get tons of things wrong, uh, but then you keep going and you fall in love with everything that happens. Uh, the second time uh, felt a little bit easier. The third time we are changing the curriculum a little more to make sure that we offer more statistics, but every time is different. And that's what makes it part of uh, the benefit to us because a big part of the outcome that we have achieved is also to diversify this field. Uh, two thirds of our first class were women. This is in a field that has traditionally been dominated by men. Half of our second class were people who identified themselves as black and indigenous people of color. And that is also the case with our third class. So bringing that diversity was never the only goal of this work, but it has been a wonderful outcome. You're obviously talking about this to a wide audience. Are you hearing from competitors? Are people getting in touch with you and asking you about your experience and how they might do it within their own companies? There have been a lot of companies that have gotten in touch with us, certainly companies in retail, and we want to help everyone. We want everyone to get uplifted with this because it helps. It helps consumers. It helps uh, bring those skills throughout the world, across the industry. But we've also heard from uh, people in financial services, in healthcare, in telecommunication, and yes, in technology as well. They've reached out to learn from our experience and we share it broadly and with pleasure because we want everyone to gain from this. So back to the business of this though, are you finding it more cost-effective to upskill than to hire externally and train people according to the Levi Strauss and company methods? This has never been about savings uh, costs. It has always been about getting the best talent that can help with the digital transformation of our company. Uh, yes, we have hired from outside. I personally joined uh, Levi Strauss and company from a technology company uh, because these are new skills. Uh, but the best way to drive the, the digital transformation of a company is to have a blend 
of external people, yes, who can challenge things appropriately and bring skills that may not have been native to a certain industry. And at the same time, have internal people who know the company, know the industry, have been facing certain problems for years, and now we are upskilling them and giving them the tools to solve these problems. We often hear about a digital skill shortage um, and in some demographics more than others. Is there a role for the US government? Is this the kind of program you would see uh, that should be public rather than just in private companies? I see a role for everyone to help in this. Certainly educational institutions, not-for-profit organizations, government as well, and private companies. We all have a role in determining our future. We are all responsible for what we can do as organizations. And uh, yes, we all own it and we all need to make it happen. So moving away from the boot camp just for a minute, Tell me what uh, Levi Strauss and company is doing to use machine learning to sell jeans or jackets. <laughs> we sell a lot more than jeans or jackets. Um, and what is wonderful about a brand like Levi's is uh, that it has been a platform for social good and for values around the world. I personally joined Levi's because when I was growing, growing up in communist Bulgaria at the time, Levi's was not just a brand, it was literally a flag for freedom and democracy. Uh, so we use machine learning at Levi Strauss and Company to disrupt the entire industry. What's happening now um, across our industry is the biggest thing to happen since the first industrial revolution. This combination of digitization, data and artificial intelligence is helping us create smarter connections with our consumers, personalizing the experience that our consumers have, is helping us have a healthier commerce, and it's also helping us really uh, accelerate our design. I, we really believe that AI will not replace jobs and people, it will help augment and make people um, even more informed and even better at their jobs. So I want to finish with one last question, and it's about the gender and age bias that some people say are baked into artificial intelligence. And it's related to a Twitter question that's just come in that I would like to ask you as our final question. It comes from Liz Ward, and Liz asks, what was the average age and age range of participants? Can you say how we 55 plus folks did? We have absolutely had a big range of our uh, participants. In fact, we had uh, in our first cohort, we had one uh, participant who had been with the company for more than 30 years. And that is not an anomaly. Uh, we continue to have a broad diversity of participants in the program. And as I said, while it was not the only or explicit goal of the program, it has been a wonderful outcome because we place a very big emphasis on diversity in this field. You're right, it is absolutely imperative that we have diversity um, in the field of artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is the result of humans. It's humans that create the code, it's humans that use the data, and humans are limited. Humans have bias, uh, and therefore 
we uh, do everything we can to minimize the, the bias. And we do so not only with the bootcamp, but we do so in three ways. One is diversity of people, whether it's hiring people, whether it's upskilling uh, people within the company, we are very determined, absolutely determined to make sure that we have people with all kinds of backgrounds and experiences. It's not only about gender or age, even though they are important as well, it's about ethnic background, it's about cultural background, it's about geographic representation, um, any kind of diversity you can imagine, uh, including where people have experience um, in, in their jobs. So it's not just from this industry. And even within this industry, it's various fields within that manufacturing, distribution, design, finance, human resources, retail, and so much more. Absolutely imperative. We also use a diversity of data sets. We actually have something that we call a data ocean. It's a vast repository to house all of our diverse data sets because it's the diversity of data that also helps. Uh, the more limited the data is, the more likely there is that there would be bias in the algorithms. And then the third way in which we do our best to minimize bias in artificial intelligence is the diversity of tools as well. That is one reason we always want to make sure we include open source tools because they are worked on by people all over the world. They're always refreshed and we can continue to upgrade and update them continuously and all the time. So uh, I would not say that we can fully eliminate bias. Nobody is ever able to do so. I actually studied bias in my dissertation many years ago when I was doing my doctoral studies. Uh, however, it is a huge responsibility, just like it is our responsibility to educate and upskill people all over the world in any organization. It is also our responsibility and we feel very passionate about it to minimize bias. Thank you for that powerful message about minimizing bias and the importance of being inclusive. Katia Walsh, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.